This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. I began learning about the art of Japan on episode 37 with the filmmaker Yujiro Seki. Out of my episode with Seki came a friendship with researcher Michael Van Hardingsveld. Michael led me to the work of the California-based artist Dwight Huang, a specialist in what is known as Kyotaku, which is an art form of doing ink impressions on fresh fish. Today, Michael is back and he's going to help me introduce the history of Gyotaku, and then the episode will proceed with Dwight, where we will discuss his life as a Gyotaku artist. So let's chat with Michael first, and then stick around for my chat with the artist Dwight Huang. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. And this is Michael Van Hardingsfeld. Michael, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I'm really happy to be back. This is great, man. I'm really glad that you agreed to help me introduce today's guest, your friend and artist, Dwight Huang. So thank you so much for helping me out here today. Oh, yeah. He's a really good friend of mine. And I thought who, you know, it's a great opportunity to be able to introduce him for all your listeners. So, Michael, you've been on this show before, but can you just kind of remind listeners um, who you are and what you do on a day to day basis? Yeah. So I was here for episode 47, where I talked a little bit about Japanese art, um, specifically about arts of Buddhism. Um, we had some very compelling conversations about Fudo Myo and a couple of the other wrathful deities who I absolutely am, gravitate towards. Um, not that I'm wrathful myself. <laughs> of course. And uh, so I do work at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Um, I'm a junior collections technician there, which means that I work with packing the art and making sure that it is safe and well-preserved for future generations. Um, I'm also a research scholar at LACMA. Um, where I specialize in the research of Japanese art, um, specifically arts of Buddhism. Uh, I also have the unique um, opportunity to be a curator at both the Japan Foundation Los Angeles, and I've done some curating for other institutions around the world as well. You've written a lot of stuff, too. Who do you write for? So I do a lot of writing for the website Buddhist Door, um, and I'm writing a column all about the imagery and iconography of Buddhist art, especially in Japan. Fantastic. What, does, uh, what kind of art does Dwight do? So he does an art form that's called gyotaku. And gyotaku is, uh, it's called fish printing. It's Japanese, meaning fish impressions or fish rubbings. And the reason it's called a fish rubbing is because it's got this really interesting history. Um... So a lot of people will, you know, they'll talk about the middle of the 1850s. Um, they'll talk about that's kind of like the origin of fish printing itself. But I want to go a little bit further back than that, all the way back to the second century CE. Please do. I love this. Okay, so there is a tradition in China where rubbings would be made of inscriptions on rocks. And you'd see this in the 2nd century, you'd see this in the 5th century with different scriptures, Confucian scriptures, and you would see it also with Buddhist scriptures. And this is really the idea of preserving something that is, you know, a little bit, I would say, um, vulnerable to the elements. And you're taking that and you're preserving it for future generations to be able to read as well. 
um, you're largely doing the same thing with a fish. Now, the idea of using these fish as the matrix from which you get an impression dates back to about the 1850s with somebody by the name of Lord Sakai. Lord Sakai was a samurai retainer, um, almost at the end of the samurai um, rulership, the feudal period of Japan that we all know and love. And he, during one night, had a night of exceptional fishing. He caught very large fish, and he wanted to find a way to preserve these fish and to show what a noteworthy catch he had. And I guess one of the ways that they determined to preserve these for the future was to put ink on the fish and rub paper on them <laughs> and print them off. And it's such a strange idea, and yet the outcome, yet the result, is something that is a very accurate portrayal of what was caught so long ago. And it, it's this is something you can't make up a story. You can't be like, oh, I caught a fish this big, um, meaning it was like two feet long when really it was only about a foot long. You've got an actual impression and you can't embellish and you cannot sell the story short either. Okay, so when did it go from China to being more uh, known in Japan? Because it's basically we think about it, I think, today as being more Japanese than Chinese, right? So it never – so using fish as a matrix never started in China. Oh, okay. The idea of using a fish as the matrix is strictly Japanese. Lord okay. Sakai was a Japanese samurai lord. And, you know, it's actually quite interesting that Japanese art form – like Yotaku, um, China usually imports all of their art forms over to Japan, and Japan, for the most part, are influenced by Chinese art methods. You see that throughout art history in Asia. However, it's very peculiar, and I find very interesting that it actually was Japan that introduced the concept of Gyotaku to China. And China's only been practicing this for the past, maybe, century, not even that. Okay, so what do we know about like 1850s until the present Japanese Gyotaku? Um, so the major steps that we're going to see um, in the, you know, from the 1850s to about the 1920s, you kind of see a lull in the practice. Not a lot is preserved from that time period. And then all of a sudden in the 1920s, you see this emergence of the art form again, still as a folk art, still as something that you would see more likely hung in sushi restaurants or in uh, fishing, angling shops, things like that. And then you see in the 1950s, a group calling themselves Gyotaku no Kai or the Association of Gyotaku. They came together um, and really started a group that was interested in the connoisseurship and the collecting and the popularization of Gyotaku. They did this so well that they ended up in 1955 introducing the art form to the United States. And one of the members, Yoshio Hiyama, um, he even introduced – he went to United States – and he did live presentations of Gyotaku for people to see. Let's jump forward. Let's jump forward another few decades to the 1970s, 
and you see the formation of something called the Nature Printing Society, NPS. This was founded by Christopher DeWeese, Eric um, Heldberg, and uh, a few other members. And this group was dedicated to preserving and moving and evolving the Gyotaku art form from an American perspective. Still retaining the traditional practices that the Japanese artists so long ago would have done, but moving it forward as well with medium, with um, technique, and so forth. Where would they display those works whenever it was starting to be popularized by this association in the 1970s? So in the 1970s, the Nature Printing Society, they did this massive traveling exhibition throughout the United States into Canada and then also to Australia. Um, you see that um, at the be- you know at the very beginning of the 1980s. And the Smithsonian, they had this traveling, they supported, fully supported this traveling exhibition of Gyotaku. Awesome. Okay, so that kind of brings us to the focus of today's episode, which is the guest, Dwight Huang, who is a notable Gyotaku artist in California. Uh, Tell me how you came to know Dwight. So it was completely by accident. Um, One time, uh, you know, I've got this interest in Japanese art, and I thought, oh, I'm going to look up traditional Japanese art forms. And I did a Google search, and I came across this really strange image of a fish. I'm like, oh, that's a great painting. And then I look it up, and it says, no, it's a print. And I'm like, well, okay, but it looks very realistic. I wonder how they were able to pull that off. I did a little bit of digging, and I found out that they actually printed the real fish. And I thought, oh, that's really strange. And I looked a little bit deeper into the art form of Gyotaku, and I thought, I need to learn more about this. Yeah. I need to learn more about the art form of Gyotaku. And what better way to do that than to organize an exhibition of Gyotaku in Los Angeles? Right. So so what did you do? um, So I started looking for artists that are based in Los Angeles that I could work with to put together a beautiful show to popularize and really introduce people to the idea of fish printing. And then also give myself an excuse to study and research it myself in depth. And I started messaging all of these different artists, and I came across one artist named Dwight Huang. And I messaged him on Facebook um, because that was the easiest way to get in contact with him. Um, I didn't hear from him for about three months. (laughs) All of a sudden, I get this message out of the blue. Oh, crap, oh, crap, oh, crap, oh, crap. Like, yes, I'm, you know, this is Dwight. I'm excited to participate. I'm so sorry I missed your message. I hope we this is I hope we can still work together in the future. And I luckily, you know, there was no uh, no bad blood between us. Uh, I didn't feel slighted in the least that he had missed the message. It was me taking a shot in the dark anyways. And we met up at LACMA uh, where I work. And we discussed the possibility of doing a an exhibition at the Japan Foundation Los Angeles. And I would say the rest is history. We had that exhibition happen earlier in 2018, um, once in February and another time in, I believe it was June and July. And the popularity of the show, it's one of the most popular shows that Japan Foundation Los Angeles ever did. And we even were able to pu- publish a small little catalog based on Dwight's work and how he preserves the traditional form of Gyotaku. 
Nice. Um, so based on those collaborations, uh, had, have you ever gotten to see him actually do the printing like in person? Oh, so uh, one of the things that we do now is we make uh, tours around um, Los Angeles and a few other of the cities surrounding Los Angeles, and we will go together to different institutions. I will present the history of Gyotaku for people to listen to while Dwight does a live demonstration of the art form. As he does the live demonstration, I will provide intimate insights into what he's doing so that he can focus on creating the art, and then I will contextualize it for people who are watching. Fantastic. So based on your um, collaborations with him and the experiences you have seeing him do this work and all the results that he's had, what is special to you about the way that Dwight does his Gyotaku art? So it really comes down to vision. Um, Dwight is an exceptional artist who works only with the traditional materials of sumi and washi, um, which is Japanese ink and uh, Japanese paper. And this is the way that it was done way back when the whole art form started. And Dwight hasn't deviated from those techniques. He hasn't deviated from those materials. He wants to preserve those traditional materials for the future. Um, But I would say that there's a lot of vision in it as well because he uses a very zen-like approach to creating the art. Um, He meditates on the fish and he meditates on the pose that it should take. And he meditates on every application of the ink. Watching him do it, he goes into an almost trance-like state where he'll sometimes forget to talk. Like if he's the one that's doing the live demonstration, he sometimes will not talk at all because he'll be in the zone, applying the ink, dabbing at it, and really thinning it out so that it applies and impresses onto the paper perfectly the very first time. Yeah, and you know, you made a film with him where he did this, right? And like you can see that on his face that he is so focused and in the zone. It's like the world doesn't even matter. He's perfectly in a flow state while he's doing it. I honestly think that the world could be ending around him and he would still be creating the art. I love it. Um, So why do you think that any listeners should find and support, if they are able, the artwork of Dwight Huang? So I would say people should support it because it's, you know, other than it being a very beautiful accent piece in your house, it could actually be something that starts a lot of conversations as well. Um, it is a little known Japanese art form. Uh, it is beautifully presented. Um, it speaks to the values of Japanese art, I think, in some really incredible ways. And it is an art form that I think, especially when coming from somebody like Dwight, it provides a window into the soul of fish. It reanimates dead fish in a way that you wouldn't expect. Fantastic. Well, Michael, I also want to recommend to listeners that they read your essay, which is on Dwight's website, Introducing Gyotaku and the History of the Art Form Itself, which was a really compelling read and was really helpful for me in preparing with this, uh, for this conversation with Dwight. So thank you for writing that essay as well. Thank you very much. Um, I also can say that I've got a whole bunch of extra catalogs from Dwight's show that we did in 2018. If you, if any of your listeners would like a copy of that catalog, they can just put a request through you and I would be happy to send that, send it out. Thank you, Michael. 
I'm uh, going to be right back with Dwight Huang. Okay, sounds good. Dwight Huang, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm really excited today to talk about the art that you do, known as Gyotaku. But before we get into the specifics of what it is that you do as an artist, can you just kind of introduce yourself a little bit to the audience? Well, um, before Gyotaku, I used to I used to be in the film industry, and uh, as a storyboard artist for for anime for commercials, live action, everything. And uh, much of that, seven years of that, was actually in Tokyo. Okay, when did you live in Tokyo? Um, I lived, I was there in two parts. One was in 2001, I think, right after, uh, you know, the Cannes Film Festival in France? And I had a film there, um, part of the official selection. And then I got sort of headhunted by the studio, it's called Production IG. They're the ones who did like Ghost in the Shell and whatnot. And they asked me to be an intern. And I, I did that for two years, went back to the States, and then I got invited back again for um, a movie in 2005, maybe, or six, something like that. Um, and then I spent five years there. Okay. So do you, are you still involved in filmmaking at all, or is your focus solely on art these days? These days, it's full-time Gyotaku. Okay, cool. Uh, last movie I worked on was called Inuyashiki. That was back in April, I think. Yeah, that was the last one. Okay, cool. Um, can we go back in time a little bit? I'm curious uh, sort of about your upbringing. Like, where are you from, and um, like, where'd you grow up? Okay. Um, I was born to Korean immigrants. And I was born in, in uh, East L.A. Uh, we lived there for a while. We lived, we moved to both Hollywood, Sacramento, Seattle. And then after Seattle, that's when I ended up going to Tokyo. Um, yeah. Awesome. Um, so as an artist, I always like hearing about people's path towards their profession, whether they be a professor or a teacher or an artist or a writer. What are some of your earliest memories of really getting into doing art of any kind? Oh. Um, well, I always liked to draw ever since I was a little boy, uh, since I was a toddler. I had baby pictures of me drawing and, and coloring stuff, and I was always into that. I was always sort of quiet and just wanted to do that. And it wasn't until um, college where, without telling my parents, I just sort of dropped out because I, I, had, I had my fill of it. I wanted to draw. I wanted to explore. And so um, I sent a portfolio to a school called CalArts. And 
because the people around me were telling me, oh, you should try animation and, and get into filmmaking. I thought, wow, you know, that, that, what a great idea. And so I just said, oh, screw it. I'm just going to try it. I sent in a portfolio, and I got a, a score of like 5.4 or something out of 10. So I, I didn't get in. And, but I, I really wanted this. Like it, like it, it was do or die. And so I sought out a life drawing teacher. They told me that I, my life drawing had to improve. Not just life drawing, but like quick drawings. You know, sketching out a, a person in 30 seconds or, or whatever. And they recommended uh, uh, an instructor. His name's Glenn Bilpu. And so at the time I was living in Sacramento and he was in, I think it was in Glendale, Van Nuys, Glendale, something like that. And so in secret, I would, I took a flight once a week to go see him, learn under him, come back and pretend nothing ever happened. That went on for a few weeks, ran out of money, had to tell my mom. <laughs> and, and first thing she said is like, you know, you can't tell your dad. Like, this is... <laughs> but if you were really into it, all right, well, you know, let's do it. Very and cool. Yeah, but, you know, she, she had a lot of mixed emotions about that. And um, so we did that. And then finally at the end, um, I put in the portfolio and I got in, I got accepted at, at nine point something. And we told my dad and yeah, that's, that's how that was. But you know, it was too late. I had to do it. Nice. Did you have any like teachers in high school or college that like were, um, you know, inspirational to you or was this path like totally forged of your own passion for, for artwork? I mean, there were teachers that would say, Oh, you know, like they would tell my parents, oh, this kid, your kid, you know, he's really good at art. He, he has something. You should, you should allow him to explore it. But that's where it would stop. I even found recently in my old files uh, uh, during grade school, like every year a teacher would write something on there. And I'd imagine like a lot of students, you know, the teachers would say, oh, you know, this kid, He's excelling in math, or he's excelling in this or that, or he's really good. He's, he's he or she is athletic, but mine it was is consistent. Consistently, he's really good at art. You should, and he's very interested in art. You should allow him to do art. And so there was all that, but it wasn't until when I was at CalArts and my parents wanted me to quit. And they wanted me to drop out. They wanted me to go back to regular school, and and it was the dean of of the animation school his name was frank terry and he said he called them up and he said you guys you guys got to back off and allow your son to to flourish because he's thriving here and you're not allowing him to you're you're blocking him okay so you've got this really interesting and almost like um you know confrontational path that you've really had to be kind of brave to stick to your guns to find your passion and what really works for you haven't you yeah, I mean, some people say it's brave, but in my head it was just like if I didn't do this, I would. I, I, it was the only thing I was good at. Yeah, and the only thing I had fun doing, and I couldn't imagine going on with the rest of my life doing something that I didn't like to do. Amazing. Okay, that is fantastic. So, 
you are now a specialist in this incredible style of art that I bet that very, very few people um, listening have heard of called gyotaku. And the translation of that is literally fish rubbing. And in there, you utilize only two um, two pieces of um, supplies, which is washi paper and sumi ink, correct? Right. Okay. So before we dive into the how of this style of art, I want to know the where, the why, the who. So where did you first learn about this style of art, and who first showed it to you? Okay. Well, I've always liked to fish. So... Ever since I was a boy, it was all about drawing and it was all about fishing. And when I got to Japan, when I was working there, you know, fishing never stopped. Like I, I was excited to go fishing there, fish for fish that I've never seen before. And so I go to these tackle shops and every single tackle shop in, in Japan has Kyotaku prints plastered all over their walls and their ceilings by uh, either the patrons or the people who work there. It's just bragging rights, basically. They're real rough. They're not treated well. You know, they're not framed for the most part. They're just sort of pinned on to everywhere. And it's just like wallpaper, basically. But when I saw them, I was like, wow, that's really, really cool. Yeah, I've never I, I've never seen that before. I've never heard of that before. What a cool way to, like, um, uh, make a trophy out of, out of, you know, a catch. And so I asked my friends around me, my Japanese friends, and they all told me that it was, it was called Gyotaku, and they told me how it was done, but none of them re really knew all the specifics. They just knew, you know, oh yeah, you just get a bottle of sumi, or you grind your own, get some paper, and do that, or check out YouTube, and, and you'll figure it out. But they all wondered why I wanted to do it, because it's such, it's considered such a um, vague, obscure folk art in Japan and in Korea. And um, the only people who do it are, are little kids, little school kids who, who, you know, learn about their culture or really, really salty fishermen. And it's like no one really cares about it. And, yeah, it's not really considered much of an art form over there. It's more popular outside of Japan than it is in Japan. Where did you see it done uh, first, because it's one thing to see the prints hanging on the wall in the in the tackle shop, but when did you see it done, and what was it about the process that captivated you? Aside from the first time I saw it done was actually on YouTube. Just I was pouring through Japanese YouTube, just trying to absorb as much as I could, uh, and so there was a lot of just trial by error, a lot of experimenting. It wasn't until uh, two years ago at the Nature Printing Society's workshop um, that I actually saw it done live in front of me. Um, the style was different, the materials were different, but, but the, um, the, base of, the basis of it was all, all pretty similar. But yeah, I, I never seen it done in front of me until two years ago. Okay, so you were basically introduced to this style of art that you've now turned into a profession only two years ago? No, I, I well, yes and no. Uh, I started experimenting with Kyotaku like, I think it was nine years ago. Um, just as a hobby, just to like, memor mem 
um, showcase my like the the fish that I catch or the fish that my wife caught. Um, when we moved back to the states in two at the end of 2011, after the big quake and, and tsunami and all that stuff, um, I thought, you know, why not try selling a few prints just on the side? Maybe I can line my pockets with a little bit of spending cash to, you know, fund more fishing gear is, is what my thinking was at the time. Nice. Yeah. And my, I, my wife was very against it. She was just like, you know, why would you do this? You know, why would you spend time on this? Who would want to buy this? And, and so she gave me a hard time, but I said, Oh yeah, I'm going to do it anyway, just cause I have to do it anyway to, to get it out of me. And, and sure enough, like it, it took off pretty steadily and pretty well, fairly quickly. Um, but it wasn't until it wasn't until this year where things just really took off to the point where I had to make a decision. You know, do I continue with film work or do I put a hundred percent in this instead? And I and I did the latter. Nice. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, you can always go back to working in film. I would imagine if you ever wanted to. Sure. Yeah. So now, what I want to know is the how. I want you to tell me about your supplies. I want you to tell me about Sumi Ink and washi paper. So let's start with Sumi Ink. What um, makes the ink important to the method, and how do you do it? Okay. Well, Sumi Ink is basically soot and water. Um, that's what was traditionally used in uh, old Asian calligraphy, and as well as um, ink paintings, Sumi Ink paintings. Um, and so the Japanese to this day, um, they don't really use a whole lot of other inks, um, like the Westerners do. Um, it's just, it's traditionally sumi and it's, it tends to be kept with just sumi, um, for this type of printing anyway. Um, it's real simple. It's, it's made out of the materials that Japan has a lot of, which is, wood um yeah and, and and generally speaking the japanese tend to like things very simple simple but perfected really well and so uh, when they create this ink uh, which is basically um it basically looks like charcoal it's like sticks of charcoal and you, and you grind that with water um yeah, I mean that's that's all it is, really. So, where do you get your? Do you do you go and just buy normal charcoal and then grind it down with water? How do you make your ink? No, I don't actually make my own sumi sticks. I order them from Japan. I order them from Korea um, as sticks, and and then I'll grind them at home for each print. Or if I'm doing a really large fish, then it would just take forever to to grind enough ink for for that. And there's also like you can buy bottles of pre-made ink um, and use that as well. Nice. I saw you making the ink in the film that you did with Michael Van Hardingsvelt from LACMA. So anybody, I'm going to post links to that video that shows you actually making the ink and grinding it um, that you have posted on your website because it's super cool to actually see. Um, so now, what is washi paper and how is it different than like 
any other kind of paper? Well, washi paper, wa means Japanese, and she means paper. Um, so it's basically Japanese paper paper. If I say washi paper, I'm saying Japanese paper paper. Yeah, like when, when somebody says sumie painting, that means ink painting painting. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's it's there's all different types of washi. Um, the the Chinese also make it. The Koreans also make it. They call it um, something different, but the kanji is the same pretty much. Um, it's not exactly the same. The latter part is the same. The front part is it. But hold on, I lost my train of thought. That's fine. Uh, so washi paper. So get. Totally lost my train of thought. That's totally fine. I have all the editing capability in the world, so this can just come right out. It's like totally simple. Could you lead me back into it again? Yeah. Um. So, so now, uh, what is, um, washi? Like, how is it different than any other normal kind of paper? Okay. So washi paper stands for wa means Japanese, she means paper. Now, um, all it is is. There's different types of washi, but it's all categorized as washi. There's there's kozo, there's there's gampi, there's there's various kinds, but the main one tends to be kozo. It's made out of mulberry bark, like long strips of mulberry bark, and it's turned into pulp. Um, and that's generally what I use. I use different thicknesses, um, textures, but it, yeah, most of what I use is kozo, um, all the hand, handmade stuff. Awesome. Do you, like, where, where do you get stuff like that? Do you just order that as well whenever you order your ink? I don't have the patience to actually make it myself. Uh, yeah, that was just lengthen the process and, and I couldn't deal with that. But yeah, I ordered them from either Japan or from Korea because the materials are, are generally the same. The, the quality tends to be really different. The Japanese stuff tends to be really, really clean. Um, perfect and very expensive and so for special projects i'll use for I'll, I'll order from japan for for most projects i'll order from korea but for most people who just look at it it'll, it all really looks the same though. okay so there are three methods of gyotaku and there's this fantastic essay on your website written by the guy I mentioned earlier, Michael Van Hardingsvelt from Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And um, the method that you use is direct application method, otherwise called chokusetsu ho, right? Right. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about what this um, process entails uh, why you use that method as opposed to like indirect application or transfer print method? Um, why do you use the method that you use? Okay. Well, I use choke sets of method. Um, because, well, one, that, that's, that's the style that I fell in love with when I first saw them. All the prints that I saw were done in that method. Um, it's the simplest method. It's the oldest method. It's the roughest method. It's the quickest method. Um, basically what it is, is you take the ink, you brush it directly onto the fish, onto your subject, which is why it's called the, the direct method. And then on top of that, you place the paper. And so basically what, what you're getting is a, a mirror image of 
your fish. Yeah. But um, that's what I fell in love with. Okay, so the the uh, the process of doing this is super interesting because you take this brush and you actually paint the fish with the sumi ink that you have ground and made, and so it basically looks like you're just like painting a fish with a paintbrush, right? Right. Yeah. And then do you uh, and then you put the paper on top of the fish, like you don't put the fish onto the paper, right? No, no. I'm, a lot of people ask me or. Imagine that's how it's done. No, you, you lay the you, you lay the fish down onto your table, uh, pose it according to however you, you want it to look. Mirror image, of course, and then yeah, you lay the paper down. Onto it. Okay, so there's these other kinds um, of methods as well. There's konsetsu, which is indirect application, and tensha, which is transfer print. Have you ever experimented with either of these types as well, just for the fun of it? I've tried indirect just because I was so interested in it. I've seen the results. The results look very different. They're a lot softer. They're a lot more controlled. Um, a lot of artists who use uh, concepts, uh, they use utilize colors. Uh, I've tried it once because I had to. I, like, I was so eager to, to learn the style, the technique, and, and it was at the Nature Printing Society workshop. Um, two years ago, and uh, one of the teachers, his name Paul Blake, very lovely man, very, very patient, um, and he was teaching the class, and so I had to take that class, and so um, we started learning it. He started teaching it, and basically, what it entails is you you lay the paper on top of the fish. There's no ink on it. Lay paper on top of the fish, and then with like a cotton or silk dab, dauber, you pick up pigment and then you dab it on very gently, little by little, layering pigment onto the paper to create your image. And the thing is, it takes forever. Like, what, what he told me is you have to dab like one spot at a time, 30 times, as gently as the the uh, the beatings of the wing of a butterfly is, is what he said, and it must have been just fifteen minutes in. And I was like, "You do what for how long? Like, how long does this take? Like, how many prints are we gonna make?" And it's like one, and 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 some of the other printers were telling me that, um, yeah, you, you know, like it would be one print a day. Sometimes, you know, it's not uncommon for for a single print, a single fish print to take two, three days. And yeah, that was just, that was really difficult for me to swallow because like, I don't have that sort of patience. And the idea of sitting there dabbing it away for so long was just, yeah, it just, it, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. No pun intended. Nice. Um, so whenever you're making a print, how easy is it to like screw up? Is it pretty easy to mess it up? Oh, it's really easy. Okay. Really, yeah, there's, there's, there's a number of things that can happen. Um, the thing is with like uh, concepts as a whole, the, the uh, indirect method, it's much more controlled. 
and you're, you're printing over a longer period of time, and the paper is already fixated to the fish, so the, the paper is not going to move. And so you're dabbing little by little, little by little by little all day long, so you have a great deal of control. And I imagine, I mean, I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask since I, I don't spend any time in this method, that you're not going to screw up as much as direct method. With direct method, however, you lay the, you, you ink the fish, you lay the paper on, and w when you lay the paper on, you can't see the fish anymore. And so you're sort of working blindly, and um, it tends to be messier. Um, you can't really see your process until you lift the paper. Once you lift the paper, it's already set. And so if it's good, it's good, but most of the time it's bad. Or, you know, I, there, there's mistakes that I don't, I don't, I don't like. And so I'll just try again over and over and over until I get what I like. So if you mess something up and you don't like the print, can you wash the fish, reapply the ink, and try again with the exact same fish? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. The only issue with reusing fish um, for too long is that it, it will dry out eventually. Um, with the method that I use with Sumi is that if the fish becomes too dry, the ink will dry. Like, the Sumi ink dries really, really quickly. And like, you can put some on your hands, rub it for two seconds, and it'll already be dry. And so in that respect, when the ink touches a surface of a very dry fish, it will, it, it will dry before you even lay the paper on. So nothing will lift. Um, so that's something that like I constantly have to keep in mind. I have to hydrate the fish or work very fast or both to get the results that I want. So whenever you have the fish fully painted, like how many seconds do you uh, like to spend before the the paper is fully applied to the fish? Like what's that 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 window of opportunity for getting the paper onto the fish entirely? Uh, well, I'd like to work with a fish that's not too wet, not too dry. There's a there's an in between that I prepare the fish at, and uh, once I ink the fish, once I brush on the on, on the ink, then I, I I go back and I blend the ink so that it's lighter in areas. There's a there's a gradation. Um, it's darker in areas that I want darker, and I have to do that all very quickly, and. Because if, if it just sits there like that, it's going to dry up. Okay. And you're also working with like a biological piece of, you know, a real living thing that was alive that is now dead. Um, and these things like they'll like decompose and there's all kinds of issues working with biological creatures. What is your ideal fish to print like? What do you do about exceptionally stiff fish that have been dead longer or were killed in varying ways that fish can be killed? Well, the most ideal fish is a very, very fresh fish, like something that was just straight out of the water. Uh, second to that would be something that was frozen, vacuum sealed, uh, not allowed to have any air come in to allow it to decompose uh, or freezer burn or whatever and that is just as good um, 
What was the second part of that question? What do you do if like you get a fish and it's like too stiff? Right. So on the occasion when I get a fish that's really, really stiff due to rigor mortis, um, there's two things that, that I do. Basically, you can, you can just pry it back to, you can just you, you bend it back to shape and it'll move. It's not, you know, so hard that it's going to break or, or shatter or, or, or something like that. There's another, another method that's a bit drastic that I rarely ever have to use but will use if I have to is that you can gut the fish. And if you gut it, then it'll loosen up considerably. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, how many different kinds of sea creatures have you made into these fantastic prints? Like, what is your, you know, selection of uh, sea creatures that you can use? Uh, I honestly have no idea how many different kinds I've done. Every time I see a new fish, I tend to want to, like, try it. Nice. Yeah, like every time I go to the fish market, visit my fishmongers, I mean, they know me pretty well. Every time they get something new, they'll, they'll give me a call or a text the, the night before and tell me to come in that, the next morning. Um, yeah, I, I, I have no idea. You're like, sure. you're like an investigative journalist with your sources that like give you good tips on upcoming uh, neat stuff to look into. Oh, I absolutely love being contacted late in the night from a fishmonger saying, I have a fish for you. Oh my gosh. That's, that's just like thrilling, right? That knows that you're going to have like the next day totally sorted out. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, I read in Michael's article that Gyotaku was used for some time to create images for like scientific journals and textbooks. Um, have people been looking at Gyotaku art for years without even realizing it? I'm not sure about that, especially in Western manuals. I, I, I tend to think that it, with Western science, it, it's all done by illustration, at, at least the ones that I've seen. Um, as far as Asian science journals, I mean, they could be. I haven't seen any examples to, to really say. Nice. Okay, so you are doing your art in a very traditional way. Like, you've made a very clear point on your website about sticking with this uh, these very traditional methods. However, I know that some artists are adapting, like using paints and inks to print onto fabrics or pressing subjects into wet clay and finishing with, like, glazes um, and things like that, and also doing some work with ceramics. Who else is working in this field in the U.S. that you're kind of friends with, and do you guys have, like, a Gyotaku, um, like, group where you talk about what you're doing? There's a... Well, first off, the, the beginning of your, your your statement. Yeah, I'm very, very strict about... Me, personally, about using just sumi ink and washi paper. Uh, if you look at my prints... Um, my original prints up close, like you won't see white paint or, or anything else just because I want to keep it in the same realm of Sumi. Like once you start introducing other things, then it, it turns into other things, which is fine, but it's just for my own uh, love of the aesthetic that I originally saw. That's what I like to stick to. Um, as far as, uh, Fellow fishing, fellow fish print friends. Um, 
I have quite a few. In fact, I have a lot. Um, a lot of them are members of the Nature Printing Society, a um, great group of people who meet once a year, either in North Carolina or elsewhere, usually Oregon, I think. Um, they, they come together to, to teach classes, learn from each other, share what they've learned over the year. Um, it's, a, it's a good time, and, and they're, they're really good people. Now, through Instagram, I've made quite a few friends internationally, uh, Australia, Bermuda, uh, Europe, just sort of all over the place. And we're all very friendly and, and for the most part. Um, yeah, and, and, they're, and they're, they're a good group of people that support each other and encourage each other. It's really nice. Is Instagram kind of like your preferred way of sharing your work online? Because I know you have like thousands of followers on Instagram as well. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a wonderful tool um, to be able to reach out, not just to um, you know just regular folks, but also to fellow fish printers. Because uh, ones the printers who are really open about like sharing, then you know well share ideas with each other and techniques with each other and, and that's beneficial mutually and, and, that, and that's a wonderful thing but um, on the business side of things yeah Instagram has been a, a great tool to be able to reach out to people that there's no way that I, I would be able to um, directly can you ballpark like how many people, how many artists in the U.S. are doing this kind of work? Is it very, very small, or is it slightly bigger than we would think? Um, how many, how many folks are doing this? I have no idea. Okay, uh, Michael would probably know, maybe. But yeah, he, yeah, I, I have no idea. Maybe I'll ask him. Well, he and I are chatting soon. I'm going to pick his brain a little bit. Um, speaking of Michael, the article that he wrote um, mentions a few things in your work that he calls uh, cheats, quote, cheats. Then uh, I saw you remove a fin in the video that you and he made, and then you printed the fin individually. So you must have decided to um, do these cheats because they make the work better. So how do these little cheats help you create your finished product that you otherwise would not be able to do? Well, for example... um... He calls them cheats. I call them techniques. I love but, it. Yeah, yeah, that's totally fine. I'm going to go with your terminology then, techniques. Let's modify all of that. There are little things that I, I developed a few years ago. Um, before, you know, I was printing fish, and the fish was my subject, and, and, and that's, how, that's all how I viewed it. But there one day where I sort of had this epiphany where I realized that, the fish is not just a. It, it's not just my subject, but it can also be my tool. I can I can manipulate the fish to get the results that I want. Um, and so, like you said, removing the fin. There, are, you know, when I'm approaching, and and I and I think this is something that I've become sort of known for, is um, printing these fish not just from the side where it's flat traditionally from the side, but at different angles with whether um, I'm trying to make the viewer look at this fish uh, from the top or from the bottom or, or at some sort of three-quarter perspective angle. And to achieve this, I have to manipulate the fish. So for example, let's say I'm printing a fish, a koi, a koi fish from the top. And 
I, I can't wrap the paper. I mean, I can. If I wrap the paper all the way around down to its pelvic fins, you know, to the, the fins below its body, the result is going to be a very, it's going to look like a blown out globe, a map, and it's not going to look right. And so what I do is I print all the way up to a point where it would uh, convey the illusion that it looks like it's from the top. And then I would cut the fins off and print them separately so that it completes that illusion, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. What's the biggest fish that you've ever printed? Like, give me some like weight and pounds and size. The The largest fish so far was a young, it, it was a juvenile swordfish that a, um, a fishmonger, a fish company, seafood company here in Los Angeles called Primetime Seafood supplied for me. Um, it was about eight feet long. Um, it was over a hundred pounds. Um, with swordfish, it, it's considered small, but I mean, it was plenty big for me. Did you, did you get it on the first try or did you have to like redo it multiple times? Oh no, that was, that was very, very, very rarely do I ever get a fish print on the first try. Um, with the swordfish, that one was a difficult one. The surface of the fish is very different. It feels like a shark almost. It's very sandpapery. And the size of it, the sheer size of it was, was the main thing that was really screwing me and my wife up with, with the process. Because we would cut sheets of paper that were about 10 feet long, and we were laying it on top of the fish, or at least trying to, the thing is the paper was so long it would prematurely touch certain areas and screw up the print. And so the first evening we spent, we, I think we started at like 6 p.m. and ended it at 2 with a whole lot of frustration and not anything to show for. And so we ended up putting that thing back on ice and uh, I had to think about how to go about it and I just realized I just, I really need a third pair of hands. And so I invited a, a friend over for the next day. He volunteered to help. And sure enough, with the, with a third pair of hands, I, we were able to like hold that paper over um, long enough for me to like be able to print the entire thing. And that worked out. Where is the original of that swordfish print right now? We made two originals. One is in my home on the wall and the other is that is actually at a seafood restaurant in sherman oaks the restaurant's called um the joint awesome have you been supplying artwork to um different restaurants and businesses around los angeles is that kind of like a, a an increase in your business yeah i have not just los angeles but sort of all over the country as well as a few spots here or uh, in europe and in australia um They've been using images for their menus, for promotional material, websites. Um, and then um, first time for this year or last year is that we, we've been able to like get uh, restaurants to not just purchase artwork for their walls, but also to like uh, uh, take artwork put them up on their walls for sale to their patrons. 
Very good. Can you articulate the ways in which Gyotaku is indicative of like the Japanese culture of fishing and being an island nation? Like, what does this mean to a place like Japan? Well, Japan is an island nation surrounded by ocean, and so much of its food comes from from fishing and agriculture. And you take like their their like two main products and or two main uh, I can't word. you take their two main assets uh, wood and seafood you sort of combine those together wood turning into paper and, and seafood turning into the being these the subjects of of the artwork um, and I, I believe that's how it started is you have like these two readily available ingredients and yeah and, and they put it together what are some of your uh, future goals for your work in this uh, field my future goals hmm, I get asked that question quite a bit and I never really have a good answer satisfying answer for it other than you just wanting to get better and better and better um I'd like to say that hopefully this time next year, I'll look at what I did and shake my head and say, that just doesn't look very good. <laughs> That's what I'm... Excellent. Well, um, Dwight Huang, can you tell people where to find your work if they want to get in touch, check out your stuff, and maybe even buy some art? Yeah, you can, um, you can email me. Uh, my email is on my website. It's www.fishingforgyotaku.com. Fishingforgyotaku.com. Um, I also have a shop in, on Etsy, but all the links are on my website. Nice. The Etsy shop is actually really wonderful, and that's where I got my print. So I'm very pleased that I actually get to hang up a piece of your work in my own home after I have it properly professionally framed well Dwight thank you so much my friend this has been a really interesting conversation about an art form that I knew nothing about until I met you and Michael so I really appreciate you walking me through the uh, the nitty-gritty of your process thank you very much Greg had a lot of fun Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah.